What if you did work? What if you took action and made it happen and started living inside of your purpose? What if you did work? Right now you can make the choice to never listen to that negative voice no more. The hardest prison to escape is our own mind. I was trapped inside that prison all for a long time. To make it happen, you gotta take action. Just imagine what if it did work? Well, I got to say, another Wednesday, another day, and another new week. And you believe it or not, you're one of my first guests to, to hit my, my spot when it comes to my passion, which is investing. I've, I've had entrepreneurs, small business owners, but you and, and you, I'm a failed journalist. So I always <laughs> thought about working one day for CNBC, Bloomberg, and whatnot. And you know, Chuck, Chuck Garcia, this is my first time meeting you. We have we have the same the same team, the same rep, the same publicist, and all that. But I gotta say, it's my honor to have you on my podcast. Well, Omar, let me shoot that right back at you. It is an honor to be here. It's a pleasure to be on the other end of the microphone and delighted to 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 both meet you and then also the opportunity to meet your audience. I mean, I, I just had we we started actually late taping here because your story is so phenomenal and so exceptional. It, it was engaging. Oh, I mean, if I didn't start taping it right now, I could have easily had a conversation with you for an hour, two hours. So that that's that that's what flows about. That's that's what being connected is is all about. So why don't you introduce yourself? Because I I've, I've read all your stuff. I've I've read your bio. I, in fact, I I'm definitely. We'll buy your book. Oh, thank you. So, so we appreciate that. So, so you're an author, Bloomberg. You've you've worked for BlackRock. You've yeah. you've worked for you're you're like the man, the myth, the legend, and you have so much to offer. So you have to introduce yourself on that one. I appreciate that. Let let me start in a way that may be unexpected, but it, it's going to come from the heart. Omar, I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world, and and I get to wake up every day and go to work in the service of someone else's success. And I state that because I've had the very good fortune to have had a successful and lucrative career on Wall Street, but I learned a lot along the way. And also in my, as part of my introduction, 20 years ago, I became a mountaineer. It first started with climbing a mountain. And then when I said, oh my God, it unleashed the beast. Before I knew it, I was climbing more mountains. But that mountain climbing thing is who I am. I'm a guy that just takes a step at a time. I recognize there's goals, but the most important part of who I am is that I don't do anything alone. I either guide people up mountains or I have somebody guide me up a mountain. I'm talking proverbial mountains, whatever that may be. So my background is very much rooted in Wall Street. As a finance major in college, all I ever wanted to do was three things. The first thing, make my parents proud. That was not negotiable. First generation American, I had to more than anything else. If I couldn't make my parents proud. I am not going to go further on. Second thing I wanted to do was establish financial independence right from the get-go, if for nothing else, so my parents didn't have to worry about me. They had sacrificed so much to get me to the United States, and now it was my opportunity to help them. And then third, I wanted to see the world. So my career has spanned about 25 years in my first career of working for three great companies. Bloomberg, where I was head of Latin American sales for seven years, For the next seven years, I was the company's public spokesman. And then I worked for the largest investment management firm in the the world called BlackRock and finished up with working for an alternative investment manager called Citadel. All of that, Omar, led me to seven years ago to say, I don't need to do that anymore. But I formed my own professional services training company called Climb Leadership. And now what I do, I work with executives all over the world. I help them on three things, communication skills, particularly public speaking, emotional intelligence, and executive presence. And I teach at Columbia University in the Graduate School of Engineering. So a quarter of my time is teaching at Columbia. Three quarters of my time is spent in the service of helping executives to become better at what they do. How's that for an intro? That's an amazing intro. <laughs> Thank you. I'm humbled. I'm humbled to be able to tell that story. So with, with all these executives, though, do they ever say, I need help? And, and you, you've had that in Wall Street. You, you've been there. You've been in the things. Yeah. Do they say, 
I need your investment advice. I need you to teach me how to become a better investor. The interesting part of is it's the ones that you would think that need the least help. Those are the successful ones that are humble enough to know to ask. And I state that because in the Wall Street world, there is a master of the universe type sentiment. And I'm not suggesting that if you watched Wolf of Wall Street or the the television show Billions, that everyone's like that. That's fiction. However, there is a glimmer of truth in that, in that there is a certain bombastic, sometimes master of the universe feeling where people feel there's nothing you, Omar, Chuck can teach me because I got it all figured out. The interesting part, if you listen to the Warren Buffetts and the Mike Bloombergs of the world, they will tell you we are all each other's teachers. And the smartest guy in the room is the one asking for the advice, not dictating it. I agree with that. And you're going to laugh. I've always wished I could just get a job at that McDonald's in Omaha, the one that one <laughs> right. <drives> every day <laughs> right. and he gets to take McBuffin, his cup of coffee, his Coca-Cola. <laughs> And he pays exact change. The man does that all the time, <laughs> like clockwork for God knows how many years. Right. And people are spending buku bucks on these charity functions to spend any amount of time with them. And literally the drive through person has that one minute or two minutes a day with Warren Buffett. Yeah. But yet... Power is proximity and all that. And I, I believe that. And just imagine they could literally get, I mean, he looks like the most open guy. He like, is. I, I, I mean, the guy literally lives in the same house in Omaha. I know he has all his lure jets not, but a very down to earth guy. Don't you, wouldn't you just want to tell one of these kids? That's one of the wealthiest and smartest men out there. Just ask them something, except here's your, here's your receipt back. Well, here's the interesting part. When, when I was actually in his proximity, he's a, he, he went to Columbia. He went to Columbia Business School, and, and I teach financial, financial engineers at Columbia. I teach them public speaking and emotional intelligence. But often when we get guest speakers to come to Columbia, people ask for advice. Hey, if you could give one piece of advice, what would it be? And some people say, give the worst advice ever. Oh, you just got to work harder. That's ridiculous. Or follow your dream, chase your passion, just these vague, just these ridiculous, you know, billboards. When somebody asked Warren Buffett, and and I couldn't believe I was so happy when I heard this, the guy raised his hand and he said, Mr. Buffett, if you had to give one piece of advice, what would it be? Now, I could see the expressions on everyone's face saying, all right, here it comes. You got to work hard. He didn't. And he said, just like this, he paused for dramatic effect and he said, improve your communication skills and you will increase your value in the marketplace by 50%. And he stopped talking. But listen to the advice Warren Buffett just gave. It was specific, a skill set. It was actionable, improve it. And it was measurable, 50%. That's who he is. He took something so big and he just distilled it into simplicity. That is actionable advice for someone to go out and be better. Now, these were financial engineers who have been told all their life the big lie. Oh, just get the 99 and the 100 on the exam and you're going to go to Goldman Sachs. No, careers are not based solely on one piece of the brain. And that's what his advice is. If you are only working the left side of your brain, that's 50% of your brain that you are leaving behind. So it's guys like him that I so look up to because they're the ultimate contrarians. They're giving you the advice that is contrary to what all the other crap that everyone else is telling you. That's Warren Buffett. And if I were to go through that drive through every day and I were serving him, I'd ask for that one minute piece of advice. And that's the kind of stuff you're going to get from him and the great leaders of the world. Well, I know he... He walks to walk and talks to talk when it comes to public speaking. Have you seen that? The only thing that he has hanging up in his office is a diploma from the Dale Carnegie Institute. He says, I do not have my University of Nebraska diploma. I do not have my Columbia Business School. Now, the Columbia people say, what? How can you not? 
Dale Carnegie. In fact, what he said, and I, the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People was my Bible because of him. I have read it five times. I teach a course solely on the book because the Dale Carnegie Institute and what it stands for is what the educational model should be. The cram exam model of education right now and just regurgitate what it is you were supposed to have on the test and you forgot 90% of it in seven days. Buffett says the complete opposite. That doesn't, that's not without value. But if we understand the importance of what he said and what Dale Carnegie taught him, it has more values than the formal education he got from even an Ivy League school. That says a lot about what we can do as individuals to improve our own lot. Listen to guys like him. But public speaking right there, it's all about communication. Indeed, all, it is. all about building rapport, all about connecting. All right. There's something even bigger than that. And, and I think, and, and you are right, all of that is important. And what we learn, and, and, and I'm biased here because it's how I grew my career, particularly I stepped on stage for Bloomberg and dozens of countries, thousands of speaking engagements. But there's something else. And what I'm suggesting is many people, it could be, could be Buffett, it could be Omar, it could be me. Steve Jobs, whoever, they have a cause. And what happens is when you try to build your community, what you're really doing is you've got a cause and the cause is bigger than any one of us. And really what we do as communicators in order to build that network and community, we're trying to move people to our cause and not even communicate or speak to them, move them. And by that, that's what Martin Luther King did exceedingly well. He had a cause. He had a dream. And people connected with that at the emotional level. That is what I try to teach people and what you're suggesting, Omar. Communicating the right words in the right sequence is tactically a very good thing. But speaking to the heart in ways that help people understand that what it is we are creating is bigger than any one of us, that's what he does exceedingly well because he took his billions and he's made the world a better place because he moves people to the cause that there's something bigger out there than just my wealth. That's what I love about him. Me too. Uh, not, not, well, I am a fanboy. I, I actually made it to Omaha to, to hear the Berkshire happen. One of the meetings. Yeah, uh, it's like going to Mecca, <laughs> the, the, the ground, ground zero for for capitalism. <laughs> I remember getting off the the airport, you know, middle of nowhere, Nebraska. I, I know you're you're in Manhattan and I'm, I'm in South Florida. My, I was like, even though I went to a, uh, a college town, I was like, holy smokes. You know, this this is Omaha and, you know, it's freezing and just the lines <laughs> of people to get. I mean, people, same amount of people wait to go to Disney World to ride whatever ride. But you have all these people there and you're in the same room and you get to hear Charlie Munger and you get to hear Warren Buffett and, and Bill Gates is there. And you're like, oh, my gosh, you've got three of the wealthiest men just sitting right here. And it was to me, it, it was it was like one of the greatest rock concerts and all and anything like I, I, I can't even describe it. And then you going into the. You, you could go get a Dairy Queen or, or you could get the C's candy and everything. <laughs> right. The Winnebago. Pampered Chef, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, forget Springsteen and Bon Jovi. I want the 89-year-old dude who's giving me advice. Exactly. I, 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 that's 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 what <laughs> I, I crossed over and I knew I wasn't. I wasn't just, oh my gosh, what it's a rock concert. I'm like, this, this <laughs> I'm like, this is heaven. Dude. This this means I became part of the system. I became the man because you know, who cares about whatever singing about whatever? This this is this is gold. And it's it's great. But you know, communication and you're gonna laugh. I was like the biggest introvert. I I couldn't I'm fearful. Yeah, really? I, I couldn't, yeah, I, I couldn't talk. If when they said before, like years ago, like growing up, oh, you're going to have to talk to Chuck Garcia. It could have been like saying, you're going to have to talk to Jesus. You're going to have to talk to Jesus because everybody, <laughs> oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'd be spending like a day, days and days. It, it was like if a teacher called on me, oh gosh, I don't want her to call on me, not because I have the right or the wrong answers, because I'm going to have to talk. And, and that's why in life, 
the better you can communicate, the more rapport you have, the more compelling story you can give someone. That's yeah. the way to, it, it's all selling is communicating. It, it is. And it, it's what I do for a living. It's, it's because it's the way I grew up and now what I teach and what I coach. But one thing I've come to find out, Omar, and it's an interesting evolution about personalities. You begin to make certain conclusions and generalizations about what personalities tend to be or, or tend to remove the fear of judgment, because that's really what we're talking about. It's not whether you're right or wrong, but sometimes there are these fears that we don't want to confront. And maybe in your case, it was a fear of the unknown, a fear of judgment, a fear of being made fun of. Maybe you were bullied because I knew what that was. I was bullied as a kid. And, and, and I know what that's like. So it tends to cause us to clam up. The interesting part is we tend to bring our childhoods into our adult life and we're very much either repressed or there's something about that we have way we evolve that is causing us these inhibitions as adults. And often it manifests in these career skills or lack thereof where people are afraid of saying anything, because if I don't say anything, that's my psychologically psychological safety. I'm in a good zone and you cannot pass judgment on me. And it's a bit sad, but it's also opportunistic for those when they grow up and they stop either blaming or stop considering, okay, that was my childhood. Now I got to get beyond it. It's those that come to that conclusion and make up their mind that I am no longer what happened to me in my past. I am now in charge. I get to decide who I want to become and to make the rules. Omar, I cannot even communicate how important that mindset is for people that were formerly their own self-described bad communicators, then face that fear and go on to climb to the top of that mountain based on communication skills. It's awesome to see it. A lot of that, though, because it's our childhood and the baggage, the emotional baggage, that's, that's what stops a lot of people, too, from this this fear of success yeah. because uh, we, we've seen it and we see it more and more every day that yeah. if you become a billionaire, if you become successful, if you become wealthy, you must have hurt somebody. You must right. have this scarcity mindset. And it's a lot of people want to hold this badge of honor. Oh, phew. I barely get by. Oh, I'm 20,000 in debt. I'm living right. paycheck to paycheck. And, and it's like, well, I, do you feel it? That's just because the masses have taught us that, or do you feel it's just this? I don't want to be more successful than mom and dad or my grandparents. Yeah, there, there, there's two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, and certainly in uh, for you and I that have been in financial services, there is definitely a bias for those that understand what we do. We must be evil. And that when they see the kind of car you drive, the house you live in, if that's how people choose to express their wealth, people immediately begin to form judgments that, my God, what, what must you have done to have attained this? Then there's another notion where people feel guilty for their success because they're around people that make them feel that way. That if all of a sudden you get successful, I know what you're going to do. You're going to drive the fancy car. You're going to get the big house and you're going to forget where you came from. It's a shame, but that's what I see all the time in that people fall into the gravity of other people's judgments and it inhibits them from determining and deciding what kind of life do you want to live. So the safe thing to do, and that's exactly your description, let me do not much. That way, nobody can accuse me of either having done something unethical for the achievement of that success, or I don't want to make them feel bad if I feel good. That's a zero-sum mindset. And unfortunately, Omar, it is 80% of the world. So what do we do? We spend our time with 10% of the people who don't do that, and then they run the world. Well, exactly. And that's why you'll hear people, I know, no matter what, we always have our past, people that we grew up with and all. They're probably like, hey, Chuck. How many books did you sell? Because they want you to say yeah. not as many as like Carl Stein, <laughs> not, not, not as many as, as whoever wrote 50 Shades. You're not right. frightened. Right. Uh, you know, I, I get that all the time. And I, I want to answer 
you know what? One more book than you'll ever sell. So don't worry about that. <laughs> it's like if we wanted to be in fiction, you, the two of us are extremely motivated. We're smart individuals, highly, highly educated. We can write fiction, but that's not where we pivoted. We're not here for the masses. There's also what you're describing as something that that came to me actually as a graduate school where I, I, I thought about there was one particular class I had that was offered a book I'd never heard of and was called How Will You Measure Your Life? Have you heard of that book? No, but I'm going to write it down. Well, here, here's the interesting part of the story. It was written by a guy named Clayton Christensen, and he's a Harvard business professor, but he was also a, a graduate of Harvard Business School. And on his 25th reunion, let me back up, when he and his mates graduated from Harvard, great idealism. Look at us, best, brightest. We're going to go out and we're going to change the world. 25 years later, they had the reunion, and he was completely shocked at what he saw. When he regarded all of the individuals that sat in the circle 25 years ago, when they all talked about their dreams and their aspirations, he had a moment and he said, my God, what have we done? When he took his circle of friends, two of them were in jail. One of them was Jeff Skilling from Enron. Many of them were divorced, estranged from their children. They had failed in miserably. They were miserable people. And that's when he said, my God, look at what we thought we could be and look at us now. And he thought about that. And he went home and he wrote an article that appeared in the Harvest Business Journal called How Will You Measure Your Life? And he came to the conclusion for all of the things, the brains, the pomposity, the ambitions, all those things we brought with us, we forgot to ask ourselves the most important question. And that question is, how will we measure our lives? And what he came to conclude, the happiest, most successful people were not the ones on Wall Street doing the deals. What he came to conclude is the happy, successful people define the measurement of their lives by the people that they touch and the communities that they build. Let me let that hang for just a second, because throughout conventional education, you're successful because you make a lot of money. You're successful because you achieve this, that, and the other thing. And he said, my God, we have got it wrong. For those that understand the importance of lives touched and communities build, that is where the love, the support, the friendship, that's where we define success. And we forgot to measure that along the way. That article had such a massive impact, it became a book. And I use that book in my classes. And even this Thursday in my class, we are going to go through that article. And I'm going to ask every one of my students, does it change the way that you are going to measure that life that you're going to live? Make sense? It makes perfect sense. It's like the ghost of Christmas future. Right. Visiting Uncle Scrooge. Right. Because before you even told me that story, I, I would get the misconception. I'm sure plenty of undergrads right now in, in Harvard, in Ivy League, they're like, we're on the fast track to success, baby. You bet, you bet they are. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's, my, that, that's my assumption. When I meet somebody, I've met people with degrees from all over the place. My first assumption is... If, if it is a, an Ivy Leaguer or, or right below like a Duke or a Stanford or a Tulane, right. it's like, hey, when, once they got that degree, they're on the super highway to success. They, they, they've got the beautiful wife. They've got the, their kids. They're, they're never going to die of cancer. They're not going to be depressed or <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> that's just a misconception. But it's also a misconception that academia teaches you. Because gr growing up, it's like uh, Ivy League, Ivy League, Ivy League. And, and you're a loser if you don't get in. And, yes. and you're doomed to failure if you don't. The Ivy League does not have a monopoly on success. And when I see the parents put that kind of pressure and heap those expectations on their children, that 10,000 people apply for 1,500 spots and your child doesn't get in and you ruin that child's self-esteem because they didn't get in. Are you serious? 
you are spot on, Omar. And I see anxiety and depression in our college students like I've never seen before. It is higher than anything I've seen in six years of teaching. And, and, and misplaced, unfair, okay, but that's where we are. What I hope that we can do, either through our podcast or the audiences that listen to us or even the lives that we live, help everyone in our circle define what that means because it's not what people expect. We just don't want our kids to go out and be successful. We want them to be happy and prosperous and fulfilled, which means the absence of anxiety and depression, not stress. Stress is a good thing. It's just misrepresented. Anxiety and depression can cause, unfortunately, levels that that lead to, to mental illness. And I, that is a terrible thing. I just don't think that we recognize and grasp how important the mental balance is to our children and to young adults. Your success is valued. But if you cannot balance your mental health, what kind of life are you living if you dismiss it? Well, that's the, that's the when people, oh, I can't believe so-and-so killed himself because he's He's married to a hot wife and he's a millionaire and right. it's success and happiness comes from within. It, it comes from how you see yourself, right? You, you, you can be even in service. I've always thought the meaning of life was being in service and helping out others. But if you are doing that, but deep down inside, you feel like you're unworthy or that you're not moving the needle and you have all these ill wills and these ill thoughts then no matter what, you're going to feel like a failure. And no matter, that's, there's no amount of money. You can be a billionaire, but if you feel like this, this life, what's this life for? Then that, that billionaire could have been had, having $0 in the bank account. It's just like some misconception that we have. Because, I mean, yes, I, I, I can go on paper, all my, my assets and everything that... But at the end of the day, I, I've been through divorce. I've, I've been through now having teenage daughters. And the, do they really love me? Do they hate me? But on, on paper, oh my gosh, he wrote a book. He's been an entrepreneur. He's overcome so much. This he That's success. But at the end of the day, the days that I woke up feeling unworthy or for the years then that, that's my own, that's my own demons. That's my own. It, it wasn't until literally like what you said, because I always felt if I do this, if I made a million dollars and I was liquid a million dollars, then I will be happy. And it was always, if this, if I had five businesses, if I did this, if even it, it wasn't until recently that not, nothing's going to move the needle until I sit back, I look at my life and I'm like, Am I happy? All I, I, you have to look in the mirror and go, I love myself. You can't get the cyber hugs or the, the validation from other people. Yeah. What you're describing is uh, some people call it AAS, the American uh, addiction to success. And that for those that are di- addicted to success, that is how they are measuring their life. What I hope that we can do is help people to think differently about what the definition of that success is. And also that I think we can help people to cr- prompt that question to ask themselves. And 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 I, I know even in my own education, no one ever talked about it. All they, t- all they do was cram this, exam that, regurgitate it, and move on to the next one. What a terrible disengaging method that we have for how we measure success. So I think even a, my book called The Climb to the Top, it's a, it's a metaphor of mountaineering or mountaineering as a metaphor for how we climb careers. The most important part, Omar, that I included in the book was not the individual itself, but it's something called the law of reciprocity. And I put it in the first page of the book. And it's something that you learn as mountain climbers, because when you're ascending a mountain, you are connected to other people, physically connected with ropes and and carabiners. If I fall off a mountain and somebody is connected to me, they're going to fall off the same mountain. If they haul me up to the summit because I'm weak and wavering on that day, they have taken their time and energy in the service of my success to reach that summit. But the law of reciprocity, the most important part of mountain climbing is if you want to succeed, 
help others, and they in turn will help you. It's what Jesus talked about 2,000 years ago, and yet, who, where are the billboards? Who is saying that in school? Nobody. Such a simple thing. Stop thinking about yourself and go out and help other people. You not only gain leverage because you win a lot of friends who are going to help you, you build a community of people that are going to be loyal to you for life. That, to me, is education, and it is the most dismissed and misunderstood aspect of success I've ever seen. It's amazing that you said that because it's one of the things Zig Ziglar would always say. Right. If you want to succeed, you have, you have to help enough people find their own success. And the man did that all the way till literally his deathbed. Yeah. But, but usually everybody loves like the posters to put on their offices and all. But that's probably the least quoted quote from the man, the myth, the legend, Zig Ziglar. Yeah. How many yeah. times do you hear, you'll, you'll never go into a corporate, I don't care if it's mom and pop, I don't care if it's the biggest corporation, they'll have all his other quotes, they'll have leadership. Or, <laughs> right. and, or, Surrounded by it. <laughs> yes. And, and like uh, eagle flying or right. teamwork and people rowing and, and all right. these cliches, all these posters, but it's never been about that. When, when you break it down, you and I... Are, are like the are, are like the apostles to that. It's yeah. be, at the end of the day, I, I would rather somebody say I'm a prophet, like Saint Peter and the apostles, and I'm a looking for a prophet. Pr, right. you know the, the, the that that type of prophet. But yet, that's what a lot of a lot of people, even in our industry, say they want to move the needle. But all they do is they see people as a bank account. Yeah, that's one thing I've never and and I tell people all the time, I'm like the St. Jude of 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 it, of being a business coach, because if somebody has somebody's down in it, somebody needs a hand or something, you know, just DM me, just text me, telegram me, send me whatever message. And uh, yes, I'll answer you because, yes, if you help enough people, it comes back to you, God, the universe, Jesus, whomever you believe in, it always comes back to you. It, it, it doesn't look good if you say you're here to help others and somebody's calling you or DMing you, sending you a message. I need help. It's like, okay, so how much are you going to pay me? Yeah. And, and I think what, but what is, as a consultant to many companies, I see the behaviors and the cultures that are established in these organizations. And one thing I am finding, and, I, and I'm glad to see that, when I got out early in my career, people, when they spoke, particularly the leaders, there was very little vulnerability. There was, there was very fearful minds of ever admitting I'm wrong, of ever saying what I screwed up, and even apologizing was hard to do. If I do say, and I think there, there is a shift in leadership thinking, that vulnerability is now a sign of courage. That it's a good thing to get out in front of your mistakes and admit them, tell people you're wrong, because a lot of people with the fixed mindset would rather be right in their own mind than actually accept the truth. If I said it, it's got to be true. And anything that you say to me, I'm going to negate. What? But I, I, my Wall Street world was surrounded by people like that, where everything was a zero-sum game. I must be right. Hence, you must be wrong. I think, Omar, the luxury that we have as adults is we now get to decide who we want to hang around with. Now, in, in, in the corporate world, you don't get to pick that. You're just a bunch of strangers that come together and you get paid to do a job. But once you can emerge out of there, and now that I'm in my own world, building my own communities, I get to make the rules and I get to pick them. And a lot of the rules that I make are based on the mistakes that I made early on of what I thought success was. The sad part is nobody's talking about that. And maybe that's what we do. Help people to get that earlier than later. So they don't have to make, make those mistakes. They'll make other mistakes. But I think when it comes to your happiness and success, that's, you don't want to learn from those mistakes. You, you, want, to, you want a good guidepost, have people that, you're, that inspire you, that you admire and that you want to follow. And you don't have to be them. But I think that's the aspect of Jesus and Mohammed and the Buddha. There are these benchmarks that behave in certain ways by which we look up to. 
I'm not a religious individual, but I get the principles of why it is people want to gravitate to others that they admire and respect. And Warren Buffett is one of those, Mike Bloomberg. And, you know, I don't know Warren Buffett, but I know Mike. This is a guy with $70 billion in his bank account. It's probably 71 by the time the show is over. That's not him. He never talks about that. He talks about the, the, the communities that he built, the contribution he makes to the world. He just makes the world a better place. And I, I appreciate and I try to live up to their examples. But he's another guy. When we talk about there, after he went into service, everybody was always trying to paint him is the bad guy. Oh, they don't know him. That is, I used to get, and I didn't get offended by it. I just, you don't understand. So I didn't give him any energy. You know, I was the 190th employee in the company. So I saw very early on what he was like. And then his, he is the smartest, most generous guy I've ever met. Yet when you become successful like that, uber successful people become targets and people don't like what they don't understand. In fact, they often loathe it and will fight against it. Because the majority of people, Omar, are status quo protection machines. If it doesn't fit into my worldview of the status quo, it must not be good. Guys like him come along. It's those guys that are changing the world for the better. And not because they're billionaires. He earned every dollar he made, but because he decided to take that money and make the world a better place. I challenge anyone with great idealism who is criticizing the very people who are changing the world. What are you doing about it? Because I don't see him doing very much other than criticizing, condemning and complaining on Twitter. So I stopped reading Twitter. I got a waste of time. I'm tired of reading their negativity. Go out and do something. Speaking of Twitter, that's like the, the the kid or whomever that's tracking Elon Musk yeah. his own private jet. It's yeah. like, what's the point? Right. What do you you got nothing better to do? Go out and do something productive. I know. And now his mission is that he's going to track other billionaires and, and, and their their private jets. It's it's like these these people are moving the needle on society of course creating a better tomorrow a better today i i mean i i drive a tesla and i i love the story i love the paypal story i i, I love the whole story about elon musk i don't think he killed a man for for me to buy a Tesla <laughs> or you know spacex you know I, I it's like why why villainize i from the from the beginning you know, our, our founding fathers were seen as like, you know, wealthy back then to 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 now the, the Rockefellers, everybody. I, I can't help you if I'm fifty thousand dollars in debt and I'm living paycheck to paycheck. I, I can't move the needle on society. I can't create a better anything. I, I can barely hold my own with my family if I, if I'm that person. So why am I going to throw stones and say, well, Here's a whole list. If, if if you're wealthy, if you're the one percent, people love to say the one percent, but the majority, if they saw the actual one percent, it's like, you know, from from a billionaire to what? I think somebody that makes over two hundred thousand dollars or one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. It's like what's what's that mindset? It's it's crazy because I I just I just want to applaud people and I, I want. Of all their accomplishments, Chuck, if you, if you told me, hey, I'm working on all these other books, it's like, congratulations. I'm not going to be envious. It might motivate me to become a better version of myself. But it's not like, oh, well, I, I can't believe you work for BlackRock. I, I heard that's a bad place. And they're buying all these homes and 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 the, the manipulation of this and just all this white noise. And oh, my gosh, you, you work for a Bloomberg. And and, and what, what about the person that, that cleans the windshields and he's homeless? You're the cause of that. But, if, but yeah, it, it's funny because I, I always... Uh, a person growing up with kept on telling me, so what are you doing with charity? What are you doing for charity? So last Christmas, what I, I did was I donated and I put I, I, their money. So they could not, not personally makes probably 50 K a year. So 
you know, probably not looking for deductions and all that, but the person could have gotten the deductions there. Now that's in your name. That's charity. Don't, don't ask me what, what I'm doing for charity just because I'm successful. I, I do plenty. We, we all do plenty. Su- successful people don't see the world in scarcity. We see it in an abundance and we see it in the sense that if there's an infinite amount for all of us, for everybody. Well, here's an interesting one that one of our founding fathers, a guy that everybody recognizes is Ben Franklin, and he wrote a book called The Good Life. Now, think about this. This was the 1780s. And what he talked about, there are four stages, what he felt that every adult should build in their lives. And they happen in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, and your 50s. And I think this is great advice and a good mindset for the college kids coming out. And what he talked about, your 20s should be the time of the apprentice. And he said, this is when you take the time to learn your craft. Don't be in too much of a hurry to become the CEO because you haven't earned it. Then he said in your 30s, you're starting to make some more money. And then he devote your 30s to, to starting to develop your wealth. Your 40s, you're now assuming leadership positions. And if you've done your 20s and your 30s right, you've now learned your technical competence. You're very good at what you do. You started to build your wealth. So you now have that kind of funding that allows the freedom that you're going to need later on. And then in your 40s, you're assuming leadership positions. Now you're learning what it's like to build a community. That way, by the time you get to your 50s, you dedicate your life in the service of others. That Ben Franklin frame is something that I wish they would teach in every school, even though it was a couple hundred years ago. I think it's a really good benchmark for the mindset that we develop for what is the progression for success. What he didn't say along the way is go bash the honest, competent capitalist for doing the very thing that he suggests we should all do. Unfortunately, Omar, it's those people and it's right out of Dale Carnegie. Any fool can condemn, criticize and complain. And most do. So what do we do? We don't pay attention to them. We just march on to our own beat, keep doing the good things and just drown out those kinds of distractions because they're not helping. In fact, they're just hurting. So the heck with them. We will be indifferent to their existence. No energy. Don't hate them. You do whatever the hell you want. I don't care because you don't exist. That's all. That's good. Goodbye. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and I love that framework. But somehow kids, the, the younger generation, because of the way they're raised, is turned around. Yeah. The 20s shouldn't be about that. Shouldn't right. be about being an apprentice. Right. To them, it's like, well, mom and dad said I was special. Right. Mom and dad said. No question. I was unique. So. Yep. They think that there should be a microwave to success. I graduated. I have a degree in liberal arts. Right. Why am I not the COO? Why am, why am I not on the board? And they don't understand. I don't care where you graduated from. I don't care what your degree is. It, life doesn't work that way. You have to put in your dues. You have to put in your time. You have to put in your energy. Well, when, when I was contemplating leaving my uh, citadel. I was like, I'm t- I think I'm going to teach college. <laughs> so a friend of mine. He said, Hey Chuck, I just want to give you a heads up on something. I just want you to tell you what college kids are going to expect. And it's going to come down to one thing. They're going to expect either an A, a double A or a triple A in your course. No B's, nobody gets an A minus. And if you don't give them an A plus, they're going to start to question you. Why didn't get an A plus? If you did that, that means there's no room for error. And at the ripe young age of 18, they do everything perfectly. The dumbest thing that we can do is to sit there and tell all these people that you have no room for improvement. You've earned your double A or your triple A. Congratulations. What, what we have become is a nation of children who were told they were gifted and they want to live up to the unrealistic expectations. And what happens when they're 22 and they're 23 and they try to be the COO, they are crushed under the weight of those expectations. The level of anxiety in the depression for these mismatched expectations is on display, and I see it every day. And it's a damn shame because it's quite sad. I always thought going to college wasn't about your GPA, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, no, it is. It is all about that. There is nothing else, Omar, that could possibly matter. 
<laughs> I, I know. I mean, because it's so <laughs> difficult. And, and people think I, I was I was a whiz because I never studied. Right. But the thing the thing was, I have a photographic memory. Uh, it, it helps. It, so <laughs> I it don't. Was, yeah, I hated I, guys I, like I, you. <laughs> I, it doesn't work at math. Trust me. I, I, yeah, you have I, to actually solve the problem. Yes, yes. It doesn't work for math. But I would read one thing. And, and that meant like uh, I would just go to class, usually freshman, sophomore, in those big auditoriums, four, five, six hundred people, read my USA, USA Today, read whatever it is, because it should be about actually learning something, about learning other cultures, learning about other people. In, in the grand scheme of things, does it really matter in life what you scored in biology 101 or geography 101 or any of those courses? Yeah, no, we, we stifled. There's a guy named Ken Robinson who, who did a TED Talk. I think it's one of the top five TED Talks. He's an educator. But what he talked about, the educational model stifles creativity. And yet here we are. We want to promote these entrepreneurs. And what's the best thing they can bring with them? Creativity and challenging the status quo to be different. And yet, look what the educational model doesn't. It doesn't challenge that at all. It just continues to promulgate, cram, exam, regurgitate. So for you guys at the photographic memory, when you took a history course, cool. Just put all of that into your head and you remembered it and you put it all down in a piece of paper. But what that did, it stifled your curiosity because you never had to struggle. So it means you never had to figure out how am I going to get any better at it. And I think that's a lesson for entrepreneurs because an entrepreneurial journey is not the idea. It is the continual series of adjustments about what you're doing with that idea in order to reflect what the market actually values. And I see so many people come to me and they bring their phone and they got their app and look at this great idea. Okay. All right. That's cool. How are you selling it? Well, it it sells itself. Yeah. Good luck with that. (laughs) That's not going to happen. But they're a genius. They've been told that way. So what the heck? I'll put it out in the universe. You know, call me when you need a loan. (laughs) I'll see what I can do. But they don't even know how to do a loan because we we, were never taught in junior high, high school. We're we're never taught how to invest. I, I... I learned how to invest literally through the process of buying a stock, selling a stock. Uh, I started so many years ago that you would literally have to go to the Fidelity office. You would have to pick up the prospectus of all the the Vanguard, all the Magellan funds, all that. I remember, I mean, it's quite different now, any young people, but anybody our age would remember you would go there. And it looked like either the church of of something because it was all these (laughs) Bibles and stuff here. You want you want a fund on on technology here. You you want to know about Peter Lynch here. Read this. Go home. Read it. Invest in it. And then AOL came out. Download that you really couldn't buy and sell or anything because by the time if you're like a day trader, you could have missed out on your profits. So it was all about that. And when I was a financial advisor, that's a sales job. But in order, as an entrepreneur, the way to get better is by doing. Yeah. The, the way to gain confidence is by stacking those small wins. And also, also by learning from the struggles. I, I think you know, you, we come to find out who we are in those tough times. And you see it in athletes. They get into a slump and they got to figure out how they get out of the slump. As entrepreneurs, there's a lot of slumps. There's a lot of ups and downs. And it's the individual that is most adaptable. It's very Darwinian, but it's not a cliche. It's so true. The fixed mindsets of, oh, it doesn't work. Well, I'll just blame everyone else for not getting it. Whoa. And I have plenty of people that have told me that "Ah, they didn't get it. Really? Well, you didn't help them to get it, did you? Well, why would I? They should get it. Well, they're not as smart as you. And I see that attitude, Omar, and it's it's prevalent among many, not all. Some entrepreneurs are great. They're very open-minded to figure out everything's a learning lesson. So if we can, there's there's no bad experiences. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. It, there's no, there's no failure. It's yeah, just feedback. The only time it's a failure, it's a bad experience, is when you keep on doing it, or you haven't learned a, a lesson at it. But in anything, whether being an entrepreneur for twenty years, what what made me a great entrepreneur was just time. Yeah. Just like owning a stock. Yeah. Time it's timing. Market. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's not. It, 
but you, everybody wants that microwave to success. You, yeah. you want to open up a business and you want to be the next Howard Schultz. You want to be the next Ted Turner. You want, you want to be the, the next Elon Musk. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work for any of those. It didn't work for Jeff Bezos. Right. Everybody sees Jeff Bezos now, or if he spends a million dollars a day, you know, the, all these memes, but they don't, under, they don't understand from do you remember the dot bomb that when, when it crashed the dot com that he was seen as like a big clown and that yeah. he was an idiot and it, Amazon because most people see Amazon as what it, what it is now but at one time it really just sold books. Right. Well, I, I, I had on my podcast, Mark Randolph, one of the co-founders of Netflix, and he titled his book That Will Never Work, because when he and his partner, Reed, Reed Hastings, decided, hey, we're going to start something, they didn't know they were going to do Netflix. They had 104 ideas. One of them was customized shampoo for whatever kind of hair you have. They went through all these ideas. But when they finally decided on the streaming service, right down to his wife, told him, what a dumb idea. And that's why he titled the book, That Will Never Work, because everyone in his world said, this is a really dumb idea. This will never work. Who's going to sit home and stream movies? And it was interesting how he, the status quo didn't understand what they were working on was something that was three or four years ahead of his time. And they were a whisper away from failure. Yet, what they learned about this series of continual adjustments, they didn't give up that what they did not do was fall victim to doing the same thing the same way, to fall into the definition of, insan- of insanity. They kept changing. They changed the model. They adjusted. They, as- they never made assumptions about what the world thinks it is. They went out and they tried it only to see things didn't work as expected and changed it. And I think that Netflix is probably, in our modern world, the best best example of an entire generation of people who told those founders, what a stupid idea that will never work. And the perfect title of a book for two guys who decided, well, we don't know whether it will or not, but we're going to give it a try. And unfortunately, I don't see too many people having that same adaptability mindset. They just give it a try and then they give up and no lack of these stories. You know, I guess Blockbuster shouldn't have charged <laughs> Part of the uh, part of the part, part of the they, they, they met Blockbuster. They wanted to sell for fifty million, and the Blockbuster guy told them, "Get the hell out of my office." He basically kicked him out. He said, "It's a dumb idea." A year later, but Blockbuster was on the decline. But they Blockbuster had multiple times that that Reed Hastings did offer. Yeah. Offer them up, and each time they they laugh, they scoff. Yeah. And towards the end, Blockbuster tried. After they hit their their iceberg, they 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 tried to become a streaming service. They yeah. tried to do the failed they, attempt. They didn't see it. Yeah, <laughs> it was too late. They're they're years behind and yeah. clearly in debt. But that shows you what separates smart and it's leaders because it's not a bo- a boss. Right. They had bosses at at Blockbuster. They didn't have leaders. They right. they couldn't they expand their vision. They didn't know how to inspire to move the needle. They just saw everything black and white. With with success in the business is you have to learn how to pivot. IBM well, yeah. has had to pivot right. so many times. Disney World has had to pivot and rebrand transform themselves, Apple computers, the best stories. Yes, we always hear that most companies in the Fortune 500 will be out of business and obsolete. Yeah, but there's plenty of other companies that keep on pivoting, keep on evolving, keep on changing their strategy, changing their business model. That and should that, be our that, lives, though. Isn't that an expression? But, way but yes, our lives? I mean, I, I told everybody, now my definition of success is if I'm a better version of who I am today than who I was yesterday, mm-hmm. then, then it's a win for me for today. That's success. You build enough days, yeah. you know, focus on today. A lot of people, I, I, I had a friend tell me, well, he might... If he had an argument with his wife and, oh, my gosh, he might get divorced and he might have to move into a studio apartment. He might. I'm like, this this is this this isn't reality. Reality is none of this is happening 
today. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people get bent and twisted over some something that possibly might happen a year, two years, three years. I, I can be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe soon I'm going to die. One day I'm going to die. Soon I'm going to die. Soon I'm going to be old. But that's not today. Today I'm 48. Today I'm <laughs> what you got? <laughs> yeah. Go with it. <laughs> yes, today, today is this day. Uh, people are, oh, oh my gosh, I'm going to run out of money. Well, what's your net worth? Well, clearly you're not in debt. You're not. <laughs> this, this is if, if you know, you go the Mike Tyson way of spending money or MC Hammer or you don't pivot, you don't evolve yeah. or, or you run out of money because you're just not making any more. I, I, the thing is, people focus on tomorrow when really they should. Today is the only thing that matters. Yeah. Be here today, be somewhere else tomorrow. But right now you'd be here. <laughs> exactly. That, that's like me, me telling you, well, oh my gosh, I don't know who I'm going to have on speaking six months from now. Who, who, the, who the F cares at six months from now? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, right now. <laughs> yeah, right now we're having this conversation. Right now we're creating an amazing episode. And that's all that matters. I don't care about yesterday. I don't care about the 30 other episodes because you, you and I don't have a time machine. We don't have a DeLorean. Yeah. And, you know, that that's what... So to me, that's that's what my definition of success is. Yeah, I try to be a better father today. Right. I try to be a better investor today. I try to be a better coach, a better entrepreneur, a better speaker, just by being mindful. And, and it's about learning. You know, I, I the the day I quit doing all these because we're not stagnant. You're either growing or you're dying. So I, I choose to grow every day. I choose to grow. That's a choice. <laughs> Love it. So. So where can we get more information? And now, do do you have to be a corporate executive to hire you, Chuck? Um, no, let me let me address the first. For, first, thank you for asking. To find me, my website is chuckgarcia.com. You can always go to my website that displays the things we do. And not just me. It's my partners and the people who all have a stake in my success, of which I'm grateful for. But on there, you can see our book, our radio show. We are trying to get to television. We filmed a television pilot. So we've done a lot of things all to promote the brand so that we could help people in different mediums. As toward coaching, generally, I coach most people at an enterprise level, mostly financial services, and not exclusive. It's just if somebody is out there and wants to be coached and they want to inquire, certainly my model doesn't support the individual coaching simply because I'm in the service of so many companies, but I'm always open to discussions of how I can help people, especially now we're in the Zoom world, it makes it a lot easier. Formerly, prior to COVID, everything was a very high-touch business. You showed up. Now we figured out how to do this virtually, just like we're doing this, this podcast episode now. So if anybody wants to reach out, give me a shout. Happy, happy to have that discussion. And how do we get the book, Climb to the Top? Yeah, and well, it's certainly available on Amazon and on Barnes & Noble. But if you just go to my website and you click click the book tab, you get it and you get led right to the different uh, places that have it. It's also available as an audio book. And I am so grateful for this because some people, Omar, have said, and they ask people, hey, what's the book that changed your life? And people begin to say, someone once told me the book you write is the book that'll change your life. I don't know yet if I'm willing to ascribe it's been life-changing, but my goodness, it has been an incredible influence in the way that I think about how I help people. Very specific and thematic to the mountaineering metaphor, because that's who I am. I, I climb mountains. I came to mountain climbing when I was 42. It was 20 years ago. And everything is just about helping people climb their mountains because we're all on a mountain. Sometimes you pick the mountain. Sometimes the mountains pick you, but we all need help. And that's what our brand is. A climb to the top is about helping people climb to the top of their mountain, whatever it is, wherever it is, doesn't matter. Just get out there and start climbing. Stop talking, start walking. Well, you know what? The the mountain is a metaphor towards just all our obstacles. Yeah. Like, right. There's, there's always there's something no, in the way, yes, especially the weather. <laughs> yeah, but there, there's no easy way. It's not like, right. you know, I want a million dollars. Well, there's going to be plenty of obstacles unless Uncle Uncle Joe Bob or Uncle Raphael or Uncle somebody dies and wills it to you. You have to earn it. And yeah. in order to get from point A to point B, God, the universe is going to say, what are you going to sacrifice from now to get to that? Yeah. Series of trade-offs. Yeah. <laughs> always, always. And I have to say, it's been, it's, it's been great. It's your, a pleasure. 
you know, I, I literally thought we were going to be talking more about about the finances and about economy. But you know what? This this conversation was way better because it's it helps people, and that's yeah. you and I are both in the service of being in service of watching and helping create a better today for people. That's it. And I appreciate and thank you for taking it the way because there's plenty of people that can talk about the markets and finance and we're overwhelmed by everybody's opinions. But I think deep down inside, Omar, when you strip all of that away, people just want to leave happy lives and they don't know how. Some There's got to be mountain guides out there because if if they don't have a guide or someone to help them put into perspective what they want out of their life, they just do the same thing over and over again and it doesn't work. How do we lead those lives? By reaching out to the people who are willing to help us, to be honest with us, to tell us the way things really are, not to sugarcoat it, but to be honest and constructive in our feedback and recognize that we're all each other's teachers. I don't know any more than you. I know. What the hell do I know? But what I know is that together, all of us is better than any one of us. And if we just recognize that we're here about the lives we teach, the communities we build, that's the only way we're going to get better. That's going to get out of this terrible world right now. It's, I, I can't read the newspapers. It's it's hard. It's just <laughs> bad news. So, I'm a former journalist. So I know. I, 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 don't, I don't. I don't read. I don't read it. I don't. I don't watch it because it doesn't. Why do I want negativity? Why do right. I want to put that? Oh. That's like a cancer. I don't need right. to put that into my system. I, it's so crushing. So we'll just let the news find us. But Omar, thank you for the opportunity to be able to collaborate with you. It's been a real pleasure meeting you and working with you. But what I really love about your show is you pose a really important question. You know, what if it did work? Well, what now? Well, you're not going to know until you try. So get out of the dugout, take your bat. I'm mixing metaphors here, but just swing away. What do you have to lose? Give it a try, all right? You suck. Tomorrow you'll suck less. And before you know it, you'll actually be pretty good at it. You just keep keep doing it. And sooner or later, the brain is a very smart thing and the heart is a really powerful muscle. And if you put your brain and your heart into the thing that you suck and you suck less, that's climbing a mountain one step at a time. Before you know it, you're at the top and you look back, look how far we've come. It's all about having faith, having, yeah. having that belief yeah. in yourself and a metaphor, well, a movie that called Signs, M. Night Shyamalan. With, uh, uh, yeah, I love oh, the cool movie. <laughs> they kept on saying, swing away. Swing away. Swing away. Keep trying, yeah. And people thought the movie Signs was the signs from the aliens. Oh, yeah, down on the, nah, that's yeah, not what it was. Yeah, yeah, they didn't get it. Signs <laughs> from within, you know, right. signs from the universe. Right. And yes, that's where... You and I just want people to do is climb that mountain, swing away, ask better questions, ask themselves, what if it did work? Life, life is short. Look at our age. I never thought I'd be 48. So I'm 61. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't, I tell people all the time, (laughs) the pain that you're feeling now to do whatever, whatever sacrifice will never compare to the pain of that regret that you'll have. Yeah. When that day comes. Yeah. Interesting. In fact, what I want to leave is um, a friend of mine is, is an entrepreneur. He's, he's made billions. He's just a wonderful dude. And he grew up very middle class and he worked at a nursing home and I guess assisted living. I don't know, whatever they call it these days. And it is interesting as, as he noted, being in the gravity of many people who were talking about their regrets. In fact, they talked more about the things they wish they had done. But what I'll never forget when he shared this with me. Because I asked him, I said, what are your observations now for the people that live their lives are now at very close to the end of their lives? What are they saying? And he said, it boils down to two things. He said, I heard this time and time again, which has really drove his entrepreneurial spirit to make the world a better place. And he said, I hear two things. First, most people regret they didn't help more people. They wish they had been more helpful at times when they could have been, but they chose self-absorption. Here is the interesting one on the second. The majority of those even right down to their deathbed regretted that they didn't take more risks. They played it too safe. Now, that's easy to say when you're on your last legs. So I get that. But I think it was a really powerful statement about how we can live our lives to your point. Now that we're here and we're present, let's put into our heads. Did I help somebody today? 
And was I able not being reckless, but what did I take some kind of risk that would give me a potential reward? I'm not talking of going to Vegas and putting a million dollars on black when it might come up red. I'm talking about measured risks and the recognition that fortune does favor the bold. Fortune doesn't favor the reckless. They end up in jail or dead, but it does favor the bold. And I think I'd like to wrap up on those and help people to recognize those two things. Live your life without regrets and start helping other people and see what comes back to you. It will surprise you immensely. The more love and generosity you put out into the world, you get back what you give. It's a golden rule. It's simple. The Beatles say the love you make is the love you take. More people don't practice that is beyond me, but that's what I hope in this show we can inspire and encourage people to do that. Amen. Yeah, you put a smile on my face for the, the last few minutes. <laughs> I, I appreciate that, Omar. Thank you for the time. And oh, it's thank my you pleasure. For the opportunity for this interview. Thank you very much. It was Have a real pleasure day. collaborating with you. See you soon. Same here. Definitely. Bye bye. I never told no one that. My whole life I've been holding back Every time I load my gun up so I can shoot for the stars I hear a voice like, who do you think you are? Negative thoughts come to mind when I start thinking bold Like why you chasing dreams, aren't you getting kind of old? I knew I needed help I had no self-confidence Didn't believe in myself I tried not to feel or listen to my intuition To start a business But before I even started I feel like it's finished You got a vision And let me say I don't care if they're your blood Got the same DNA They can't feel how you feel They can't see what you see Wanna change your life You gotta change the way you think Good thoughts in your mind Is the boss of your life Nothing but good vibes Every day I'm thinking like What if it did work? What if you took action and made it happen and started living inside of your purpose? What if it did work? Right now you can make the choice to never listen to that negative voice no more. The hardest prison to escape is our own mind. I was trapped inside that prison all for a long time. To make it happen, you gotta take action. Just imagine what if it did work.